It's good to be with you guys this morning. If you do not know me, my name is Zachary McCartney. I am uh, the receptionist here at the AM Church Christ. Um, no, I am. Call 1 to 5, Monday through Friday. Um, I have the honor of getting to answer the phones and try to help people out. Um, I must confess this morning, however, that if you ever have a problem calling the church office or something got, the ball got dropped at the front desk, it is my fault. Holly is just far better than I am, and so I just, I thought, they gave me a chance to talk to everyone, I just want to apologize. I'm, I'm working on it, um, but I'm very thankful that you all give me uh, the opportunity to be here, to, to work with this church, and to occasionally preach. Um, Greg is not here. Greg is in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, finishing up with Winterfest. Um, there's multiple, and this one's in Gatlinburg, and so he's helping out with that. And Kelly and Sean are actually both wrapping up with the marriage retreat. We've got about uh, 50 couples who just went through our whole weekend of, of marriage enrichment and development, and so we're really thankful for them. But I'm a little bit frustrated with Sean for two reasons. Uh, the first is that he stole my projector, uh, so we don't have a cool little deal going on back there. And the second is he took my microphones in the connections class. So just thought I'd share that with you. Um, he, he told me he was doing that, and I told him I'd throw him under the bus, so consider that done. So we're going to get to uh, talk about some scripture today. Um, really, who I am is, is a, uh, I'm about to finish a, a grad school program uh, out of Lipscomb, um, and, and we're about to get to, I love the Word of God. I, I think that every, every sentence in scripture is God's Word. And that it's teaching us and drawing us closer to who God is. Um, and, and so that's sometimes challenging, especially when we reach a scripture like today. Last week, Greg mentioned in his sermon that the text that he was dealing with was one of the most challenging texts in the whole Bible, both to understand and to put into practice. If that was like the most, then this one is at least like the second most. So Jesus was nice enough to put two super incredibly challenging texts right next to each other. Um, and we get to get to look at them and unpack them today. Uh, but this week's text is different than last week's, because last week's was talking about um, turning the other cheek and kind of how that's rooted in the Old Testament law, and it's a little bit hard to understand. I honestly think this week's text, which is about loving our enemies, it, it's pretty simple and straightforward as far as understanding. The challenge comes in the practice and in the living it out. Which is why the sermon title that I could come up with was, yes, it does in fact mean what it says. So if there's a thesis statement for my sermon is that Jesus actually meant that we as his disciples are to love our enemies. But before we start unpacking the text itself, I'm going to ask everyone to stand up. Um, I, I want to make a clear distinction when I'm talking to you today. Uh, when I, I'm about to read the text that we're preaching through, um, it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. And so whenever God is talking, when we're reading the words of God, we're all standing up. And then when I'm talking, you'll sit down, so we know which is more important. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those that love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that was God's words. Y'all can be seated. The Sermon on the Mount, among many things, is Jesus' interpretation of Torah, of the law. So when we say Torah, that's the, or Jesus says the law, if your Bible says the law or Torah, depending on your translation, what it's talking about is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is the law that was given by Moses. Um, and so when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, that's a, a colloquial way of Jesus saying the whole Old Testament. Right, But when he says, just talking about the law, he, he, he's speak, speaking specifically, if that's ever mentioned, we're dealing with uh, Torah. <clears throat> and so what, what we're, what's happening on, in Matthew chapter uh, 5 to 7 is Jesus is providing his interpretation of Torah, of the law. Um, and so his interpretation is challenging the popular interpretations of the day. And so sometimes when Jesus brings a text up, he's quoting directly um, from the Old Testament, and sometimes he's dealing with a misquotation or a misunderstanding. And so Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, I think it's really important to understand that the statement, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, is a misquotation of the law. It is a misuse of the Old Testament. That is not what uh, the, the law says. And we know that for a couple of reasons, but um, one is we can see a distinction in how Jesus talks about the scriptures. So in Matthew chapter 4, the chapter right before this one, Jesus is dealing with Satan. He's talking to Satan. And he actually quotes scripture to Satan to rebuke Satan for what he's trying to tempt Jesus to do. And Jesus says, it is written. And then he quotes directly from the Old Testament. Um, Actually, from, from the, the, the law. But when, the, when he's quoting the Pharisees, he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. There's a difference. It didn't say it is said. He's saying, um, he said it is written to Satan. So there's, there's a distinction there. And I'm very curious. One of the things that my, the first question that I ask when I'm dealing with this text is, how did the Pharisees get to where they were teaching, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Where did that interpretation come from? Because if I know anything about the Pharisees, is it, it's that they know their Bible better than I do. The Pharisees, most of them, had the entire Old Testament memorized. All of us have the privilege of having the Word of God on our smartphone, right? Or at least a paper copy. We all can reference it whenever we want. Guys, paper was expensive back in the day. So the people who were serious about learning God's Word... They would find that scroll and they would memorize it. And they would say it to themselves over and over and over again. And it would shape how they think. It would shape their lives. And so the Pharisees, they're very religious people like us. Bless our hearts and bless their hearts. Right? They, they can't just ignore something God says. They have to come up with some kind of clever interpretation in which to justify what they have been teaching. And so I was thumbing through my Old Testament and trying to figure this out this week. And I, I think I figured out where, um, where they're coming from. And I read some smarter people than me, and they, they tended to agree with it. So I'm going to feel safe in teaching it to you. And if you look at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 18, we see an important um, verse. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. All right. So, you have heard it said, 
love your neighbor. Check. We're starting really, really good. Um, but then uh, they said, hate your enemy. And so we took a wrong turn because if you look up 1918, it goes on to talk about something else. It doesn't say hate your enemy right after Leviticus chapter 19, verses 18. And actually, the Pharisees had to go a step further because there is a place in the law where enemies are mentioned and discussed. If you go to Exodus chapter 23, if you come across your enemy's ox or a donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Okay, so where did you get this, Pharisees? Where did you get hate your enemies? Because your law says that, hey, you should help your enemy's donkey out, right? So we have to find, they had to kind of creatively ignore that particular passage. But there is a place in the Old Testament where the hatred of enemies is discussed. It's the book of Psalms. When David is writing his poems to the Lord, his prayers to the Lord, when he's wrestling through all sorts of things um, in life. And if you go to Psalms 139, we see um, one of these psalms. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. So the Pharisees had to have read these Psalms and kind of thought, okay, how do we understand loving neighbor in the law? Well, let's grab this Psalm and pull it over here and we'll stick it right next to our portion of Leviticus and then we'll teach the people, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Guys, the Psalms are very important. The Psalms reveal something about the nature and character of God. God is against those who do evil, right? God hates the oppressor. God is for the cause of the poor and the downtrodden. We see this all over the Old Testament. But what Jesus teaches us through his interpretation of Torah is that what the Pharisees did in grabbing this psalm and sticking it next to their portion of the law was absolutely inappropriate. It was an inappropriate usage of God's word. It was taking it far out of context. So the little phrase, you have heard it said, teaches us something incredibly important. Guys, it's possible to misunderstand and misapply God's word. To grab scriptures a little bit here and a little bit there and just use them to make it say whatever it is that we want it to say. Right? Because I think, man, I know how this world works and I come across something in God's word and it challenges that. Well, I have two options. I can submit myself to the text Or I can kind of like, let me find some way to creatively get around this teaching. And that is, I think, exactly what the Pharisees did. Um, There's something very important and scary that we kind of have to deal with and think about. Uh, If we turn back to Matthew chapter 4, we have to remember that Satan can quote Scripture as well. Satan quoted the Scripture back to Jesus totally out of context and misapplied, and Jesus corrected him. But we cannot be people who just kind of grab verses willy-nilly and make it do with it what we want it to do. Guys, it's so easy for us to do that. May we, the people of God, be a people that do our very best to read carefully and in context. And I've got a helpful litmus test 
as to whether or not we are doing this rightly um, or if we're doing what the Pharisees did. We believe as Christians that when we read our Scriptures, we are drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit into contact with the living God. It is God's words that we're reading, and our goal is to come into contact with who God is. That God is a person that is separate from us, not a figment of our imagination. Right? That is what we believe as Christians. I am a person, and my wife is also a person, Carissa. Uh, and I love her, and we're very similar. Right? We got married because we have similar interests and similar hobbies. We see the world very similarly. There's a lot of things about us that are the same. But if I've learned one thing over the last two years of marriage, it is that Carissa and I actually do not see the world exactly the same. As it turns out, some of the things that I think are important, she thinks are less important. Some of the things that she thinks are very important, I don't find all that important. And occasionally, we actually disagree on things. Um, and this is... Carissa and I are as like close to like the same as far as two people can go. And we disagree. We don't see eye to eye all of the time. And just a little, you know, marital advice for, for the crowd who didn't go to the marriage retreat. Um, if you see everything eye to eye with your spouse, there's probably someone's lying to someone. Because there are differences, I promise you. Anytime we encounter a different human being, they're going to see some things differently. So let's look at our relationship with God. God is very different from me. God is perfect in every way. God knows all things and sees all things. He's omniscient and omnipresent. I am none of those things. I am flawed and I am finite. So if I am reading God's word and I'm finding that everything I come across kind of agrees with what I already think, I'm in trouble. I should be cautious to think that, man, I'm, I'm, in, I'm trying to encounter the living God through his word and nothing's challenging me. Yeah, I agree with this. Yes, yes, this is good. This is good. I'm probably lying to myself. I'm probably creating a figment. Like, I'm not encountering the living God. I'm encountering a God of my own creation. And so when we come across a text like the text that we get to use this morning, that we get to read and, and deal with this morning, it's strange it doesn't make sense to our eyes. It doesn't make sense in our pragmatic world. But I, we can be confident to know that we are actually reading the real Bible and we are actually encountering the living God because God's ways are not our ways. Because they're different than us. And so let's dive right in and understand um, what's going on. Um, so the Pharisees made this mistake by making the Bible say what it is they wanted it to say, I think we Christians have also made a similar interpretive mistake. But we haven't changed the meaning of love your enemies. We say, yes, you're supposed to love your enemies. I believe that we Christians have just convinced ourselves that we don't have any enemies. Take a moment and think about it. Who is your enemy? Can you think of a person or a group of people who are your personal enemies? I asked like 35 people this week that question because I was trying to make sure and I got a similar blank stare that I'm getting right now, right? Because it's really hard to conceptualize, okay, well, maybe like some terrorist that wants to kill me or someone in Washington or I, I don't, maybe something like that. But to really come up with, oh yeah, this person's my enemy, this person's my enemy, we don't really think on those terms. And there's something insidious about that, actually, because if you don't have any enemies, you don't actually have to love them. 
If you just have people that you don't like, you can just kind of ignore them, right? Jesus' teaching doesn't apply to you because they're not your enemies. They just annoy you or you just don't like them. And so my second task this morning is to convince us that we actually have enemies. Jesus' teaching is that we are to love our enemies. He does not say, if you have an enemy, go ahead and love them. The implication is clear that you actually do. And if we think about our world, that makes sense. If, if you pay attention to kind of popular movies and, and the news or whatever, you'll find that the highest moral virtue right now is tolerance. It is, it is very fashionable to be a person who is tolerant of other people and other ideas and other thoughts. And so one would think that if there is a single group of people in this world who do not have enemies, it would be the people who are tolerant. Well, actually, the way that it has worked out is that the people who are tolerant are tolerant of everyone except for the people who are intolerant. Those who are intolerant actually function as their enemies. You can't avoid having a group that's working against you or that opposes you. And actually, if we think about categories of our lives, there's a lot of people working against us and opposing us. And so let's identify those. I cannot, in this room, tell you who your enemies are. You have to figure that out between yourself and God. But I'm going to draw our attention to some categories where they come from. And the first category is that of political enemies. I do not think I am making a bold claim if I say that the political right and political left in our country are enemies. They work for each other's downfall and delight in each other's failure. I don't know what other definition of enemies exists. The right and the left are enemies. How Christians think and behave in our political system is beyond the scope of this sermon. Praise God. But (laughs) there are faithful Christians who come down on either side of the political spectrum. And for those Christians, it is good to acknowledge the other political party, the other worldview, as working against you, they're your enemies. All right, business enemies. There are many in here who own businesses. Many of you work for businesses or are invested heavily in a particular business. And we live in a semi-capitalist economy where competition is a key part of that system. And the way that the system is supposed to work is that competition brings out the best of everyone. That people will behave with integrity, they'll play by the rules of the game, and the customer will choose who's the best. Right? And so it makes everyone better. That's what it's supposed to be. We, we Christians are not naive enough to believe that it's going to work like that every time. We know because of Genesis 3 that we live in a fallen world. And so because of that, our business competition will not always behave with the same integrity that Jesus has called us to behave with. They might work against you. They might want to see you fail. They might treat you unfairly or work a legal system or other factors against you. They might be your, they are your enemies. Personal enemies. The first thing that jumps to my mind when it comes to all of our personal inter- enemies is, well, and this is, I'm kind of fresh out of college and, and, and is that, that group project that you have where you did most of the work and there's that person who didn't do really anything, but then like the presentation comes and they kind of like really put on their game face and act like they did everything, right? That, I know that happens in various, places where someone's taking credit for work that you've done or something like that. It just really grates you, right? They're your enemies. You don't like them. How about a fellow parent who politics at school to get special treatment for their child that you just can't stand? That's your enemy. What about a neighbor that has no respect for your property or common courtesy? They are your enemy. 
What about someone whose personality just grates you to the point that you cannot stand being around them? Such a person is, in fact, your enemy. So this last category that I want to draw our attention to is that of theological enemies. Persons with whom we disagree how to understand reality, the big picture things. How to understand the Bible, understand existence and eternity. What do we call people with whose theologies we profoundly disagree? I suggest we just call a spade a spade and call them our enemies. We live in a world of enemies. There are people against us. Sometimes in a hostile manner, sometimes in a gracious manner, but against us nonetheless. This is the truth about the world that we live in. And if we duck this fact, we're only deceiving ourselves. The question remains, what do we do about it? Christ's answer is clear. We love them. Meaning, we actively and intentionally seek their good. We brainstorm creative ways to show genuine kindness to those who oppose us and follow through whenever God gives us the opportunity. That is what loving your enemies means. Politically engaged Christians. Did you know that there are both Republicans and Democrats here at this church? What an opportunity to show hospitality, to love and listen and try to understand how your fellow brothers and sisters think through their faith and arrive at their voting decisions. Or if you don't trust yourself to do that civilly, just simply show love and realize that there's a whole lot more to life than decisions made by politicians. Business-owning Christians or working Christians, what would it say to the Bryan College Station community if every business owned by Christians actively showed love to their competitors? If you sought their good, what would it say about the God that you serve and about your trust in that God to provide for you and your family and your business? Brothers and sisters are personal enemies. What if every time we complained about a person in private, we made a note of it and then actively sought to show loving kindness to them in the future? And guys, if that person is in this room right now, let's wait a couple days so they can just forget that I said this, right? But past those... What about the people who've hurt you deeply, whom you're harboring deep feelings of pain and anguish? Guys, our call is to love them as well. Now, please hear me clearly. I'm not saying that we get over deep emotional wounds in an instant, or if you're a bad Christian, if you can't do that. Absolutely not. Sometimes the most loving thing that we can do in a situation is put space between ourselves and our enemy. But what I am saying is, is that anger and bitterness are like drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die. What about my fellow theologically passionate Christians? What do we do about persons who lead others astray about the things of God and about the ways to do church properly? Surely we are justified at treating them with contempt because they're not just our enemies, they're God's enemies. We may be right about whatever issue we are discussing, but it is a dangerous game when we begin to say who is and who is not an enemy of God. Paul tells us that we are all enemies of God without Christ. There is our starting point. And Jesus Christ did not ask us for his defense. He asked us for our obedience. To follow his teachings. To love our enemies. And so what I'm not saying is, is that you just give up whatever that thing that you're passionate about. What I am saying is that, is that you show love to those with whom you disagree. That is the call of the Sermon on the Mount. That is the teaching of our rabbi. But why? Because Jesus doesn't just tell us to do this and get over it. He actually tells us why we are supposed to do that. 
And his answer is because the sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous and on the just and the unjust. We Christians model all of our relationships based on our relationship with God. Based on the nature and character of God. We Christians can love our enemies because we were enemies of God and He loved us first. That is the energy behind our reasoning for loving our enemies. I just want you to think for a second about the things which you gave yourself. Did you give yourself existence? Can you make the sun warm the earth the perfect amount to keep us alive, but not too hot to kill us? Can you provide the cool of the rain? Did you set the laws of gravity to the precision that life could flourish? Did you put the stars in the sky for us to look at? Or the clouds and the beautiful pictures that we get to look at every single day? No, you didn't. God has graciously given us all of these things while we were still His enemies. It is incredible to me to think about the fact that God gives humanity the very air it breathes to curse His name. That is how our God moves towards us. So of course we're going to move towards our enemies in the way that God first loved us. Because no offense or slight made by a human being can be greater than the cosmic treason which we all committed when we rebelled against God. You might be thinking to yourself, Zach, you can't be serious. That might work well in the ministry world. It's all nice and stuff. But in the real world, we have to be pragmatic. That's wishful thinking. Let's ask ourselves for a moment. How seriously did Jesus take this teaching? When Roman soldiers encircled him in the dead of the night and Peter began to resist with the sword, what did Jesus do? When Jesus was in the presence of Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas, listening to insults and insolence from creatures that exist because of him, what did he do? When Jesus was flogged to an inch of his life, his back ripping open from the whips delivered unjustly, what did he do? When Jesus was nailed to the cross on a hill that he created, what did he do? Friends, he could have called 10,000 angels and wiped humanity out, and he would have been absolutely justified in doing so. But he loved us, his enemies, far too much to do that. And so instead, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the God that we serve. He followed his teachings to his death, a death that gave all of us life. Nobody ever said that the life of a disciple of Jesus would be easy. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. And whoever wishes to save their life is going to lose it. And whoever loses their life on account of me is going to save it. I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that loving your enemies can end in your death. But it will never end in your defeat. Because there's power in the love of an enemy. A power that conquered the greatest civilization that the world had known in Jesus' day. A power that conquered Rome. Our mothers and fathers of the faith brought Rome to its knees before King Jesus, not through military might and conquest, but by following the teachings of Jesus and faithfully loving their enemies. 
Emperor Julian in 361, Christianity had converted to, or the Roman Empire had just converted to Christianity, and Julian wanted to take it back to paganism. He was the last great Roman persecutor of the church. And Julian had just persecuted a whole lot of Christians and was trying to, to turn the clock back on the movement that happened because of Jesus. And this is what he had to say about the Christians. Christians, or Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help we should render them. They conquered Rome by loving their enemies, by showing loving kindness, by taking care of the dead, by going into places where there was plague, all for their friends and neighbors and for their enemies, for the people who threw them into the gladiatorial games, who threw them to lions, who sawed them in two, who nailed them to crosses. They loved them in spite of that, and it changed the world. Jesus is no fool. He knows what can happen when you love your enemies. And he also knows the power that happens when his people live by faith and not by sight. That is who we are. We are the people of God. Our father is Abraham who lived by faith. Guys, if there is one challenge that I have for you this morning, it is live this teaching. It is hard. But creatively think about who your enemies are identify them by name, and then work on praying for them and look for an opportunity to love them. I promise you, God can change the world through simple actions like that. When His church is just the church and does what Jesus says, it changes the world. God had a rescue plan for creation and it was the church. And when we can learn to follow Jesus, guys, I believe that that will happen. That's why I'm here this morning. Because I believe Jesus is the Son of God and I believe that His teachings are true. So guys, let's do that now. Let's try and do that for the rest of our lives. We're going to mess up and that's okay. But let's never stop trying. Let's do that as we stand and as we sing.